First Peter chapter two, verse nine tells us you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You really need to read that verse from time to time and let it settle on your heart and remind you who you are in Jesus. So let me read it again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, when you first looked in the mirror this morning, you may not have felt chosen or royal or holy or a possession of any kind. But that is who you are. Even as we sang, that is who he is, our way maker. He is the one who has chosen us, made us royal, made us holy, called us his people. A people for God's own possession. What's interesting is Peter takes and applies Hebrew scripture to us. He applies what was first for chosen Israel, now to chosen believers, not in place of Israel, but grafted into Israel. Now we become part of God's possession. That's radical. Goes on and says the reason why we've been called into this is so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what we're doing right now in the book of Joshua, and I'm loving this study through, is we're taking the historical account of Israel's rite of passage, right? We're looking at that, what actually happened, their rite of passage into the promised land, but we're taking it as a type or as an example of our rite of passage, which is the very lives we're living right now, victorious Christian living. This is such a picture, what happened historically for what's going on in our lives and in the church today. Now we've been through Joshua, uh, we're all the way up to chapter 20 now, but the first uh, chapters 13 through 21 deal specifically with Israel's possession of the land, right? Tribe by tribe, and we've been reading through all that. And it's not mundane and it's not boring to see what was given to Israel and how, as I've said, meticulous the Lord was then in laying out property boundaries and possession and inheritance in such a way that it would stand up in court today. We've been through all that. We've seen all 12 tribes and they have now, by chapter 20, all 12 tribes have received their inherited land. Now that includes Joseph's son's Ephraim and Manasseh, they both had gotten their land. So we'd say, wouldn't that be 13 tribes? Well, no, all 12 tribes have received their inheritance. Levi is not yet inherited. Levi is not yet in their place. One tribe left that needs to get their land. But you might remember, Levi's inheritance is not land. Levi's inheritance is the Lord and the tabernacle, temple service, that's, that's their inheritance, what they get, what they receive. They also get 48 cities, as chapter 121 will declare, 48 cities scattered throughout Israel. And again, that's Levi. And their portion begins with six incredibly important, unique cities. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. 
He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and shall state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now, if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriat Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bethsair in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and remote in Gilead or Galad from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them, that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word to us this morning, and I ask that you would give us application, even as we seek to understand the interpretation of your word, that you would bless us with encouragement and keep us moving forward, for we have need of endurance, as we have been seeing, as we recognize. So, Lord, by your word this morning, I pray that you will bless each one of our hearts by your truth and by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny, I, uh, a couple of days ago, Sharon, my mother-in-law, she comes over and, and she said, hey, um, last, the, the, the last time you taught, so back a couple of weeks ago when you went through all the firstborn stuff, and she said, that was, that was a lot. That was a lot. I love my mother-in-law because if she's anything, she's honest. And she tells it like it is. That was a lot. And I said, yeah, it was. That's why we recorded it. So you can go back and restudy and think it through. And we came to come to chapter 20, and it's almost the opposite. I mean, we have heard this now. This is now the third time. If you've been studying through since we started back, uh, even if you just go back to Numbers and Deuteronomy, you've heard about the cities of refuge. Chapter 20 is just a restatement of the cities of refuge. And I came at it from that perspective early in the week thinking, well, we've, we've done this. Maybe I should just skirt through it pretty quickly on a Wednesday night and let's go on to something else on Sunday morning. And reading it over again, you know, sometimes you just need to stop and listen to what God is saying where he's saying it. And so I thought, well, all right, Lord, we're in chapter 20. We'll do chapter 20. It may not seem like that big a deal. Again, Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35, and now Joshua 20 repeats this same thing about six cities of refuge for the manslayer, but it's repeated three times. So it must be important, and it is. It originates in the just and merciful heart of God, and that's something no human being can fully grasp that God is perfect justice and perfect mercy, that he is both truth and grace combined, and neither one is compromised. For a just God to be truly just means we are all in big trouble, but for a just God to be truly merciful means we have hope. 
And so these cities of refuge come from that place, from the heart of God. Exodus 34, verse 6 tells us, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so the cities of refuge express that, explain that to us. And he established them. In fact, God through Israel establishes a very sophisticated judicial system. And it it abounds in both his justice and his mercy. It reflects both. There were no prisons in the day. Have you ever thought about that? If If you read through the story of Israel, where are the prison houses? Where are the jails? That's not how things were done. But there was a very sophisticated system here of accountability and justice meted out with mercy. God's judiciary was based not only on external evidence, but on internal intent and premeditation. Remember, because God knows the heart. God looks at the heart. And so he calls Israel to do the same thing, which is why these cities are established. That God's judicial system actually considers the heart of a man the heart of a woman. And to do so, he sets apart now these six cities. By the way, note that verses one through six are all the Lord speaking again to Joshua. This is the Lord said, God is talking here. And he offers up these six cities of refuge or variously translated, they're six cities of asylum or cities of safe haven. I like that, safe haven. It's a good way to think about a refuge, a place of asylum. So again, if you are somehow responsible for the death of another person, You're out chopping a tree and your ax handle flies off and knocks the guy on the head and he is dead. And his name was Fred. And if you're in charge and you were responsible for this, you would have a place to run. You could flee to one of these pre-designated locations for asylum, for safe haven, pending a fair and legal trial. Now, the fair and legal trial didn't get all bogged down by legal loopholes or judicious caseload problems. They weren't backlogged. These happened very quickly. Justice was served very quickly. By the way, these cities of refuge were not political pawns either for illegal behavior. Oh yeah, we're a sanctuary city. These were truly sanctuary cities where someone could run. They provided legal protection for fair and just results. What we would call justice that serves both justice and and mercy. It was needed, these cities were needed a place of protection because you may remember every family had a Hadam Goel, a blood avenger. Every family had one. I don't know if they had little uniforms, but they all had a blood avenger, the goel, the hadam goel. Hadam is the blood goel avenger, but it, it also translates differently. And you may remember this, but the goel is a big deal, both for Israel and the church. The goel. If land was lost or, or a person was sold into slavery, either one due to poverty, the goel was the family member who could redeem either land or person. A special role. If a man died, the goel within the family, if he himself was not married, could then take the widow as his wife, providing for her and safeguarding the family lineage and the inheritance. That was the role of the goel. 
Thirdly, if a family member was harmed or killed, the goel became pursuer, prosecutor, and executioner, all in one, of justice for the victim of their family. So you need to think about it in that terms that the goel was all three of these things. Listen to it this way. He was redeemer, he was groom, and he was prosecutor of justice. Does that sound like someone we know? Redeemer, groom, prosecutor of justice. That is our Jesus. If you hear the phrase, though, blood avenger, as it's written here, the avenger of blood, you might be tempted to think of the Godfather. Uh, wipe him out. A mafioso hitman, you know, sent out to do the job, to take care of the family and protect the family interests. No. Think justice. That the Goel, the Hadam Goel, especially the blood avenger, was about justice. And justice in God's economy, and by the way, it stands to this day, regardless of what cultures and societies in the world may project, it stands today that capital punishment was the law for capital murder. That's God's law. Capital punishment for capital murder. Murder. We know this all the way back from the days of Noah. Let me just remind you, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Interesting, Jake was mentioning this, that Noah, after the flood, was there and, and, and establishing then going forward in the world. And one of the things that the Lord established with Noah right then and there was whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Listen, life is absolutely precious to God. More precious to God than we realize. When he creates a human life, to God, that life, that's an eternal gift that he has just given. And it's important to him and it matters to him. So he established capital punishment. Again, God's law. This was God's law and this is God's law. And some in the church would disagree with me on that. No, I don't believe in capital punishment. Well, then you're disagreeing with the Lord, not with me. I'm not the one who established it through, through Noah. And you, some would say, well, yeah, but that was through Noah. Yes, and it was never rescinded. There's nowhere in Scripture where God said, remember what I said about blood for blood? No, no, we're not doing that anymore. Never was that taken away until we come to Jesus at the cross. And then there's a different kind of blood for blood. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Even in the New Testament, capital punishment was acknowledged spiritually as legitimate and as the just course of action for murder. Romans 13 verse 3 says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Now some read that and say, yeah, but you don't know our government. Do you know the government of Rome? Because that's when Paul was writing. Do what is right, he says. And then he goes on to say in Romans 13, 4, speaking of the governing authority, it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And that phrase, bear the sword, speaks euphemistically of capital punishment that that was established by God, that the person who commits murder then is removed from this earth, their life removed from this earth. Well, that doesn't seem fair. I think it's absolutely fair because now that person has to go stand before God and be dealt with in his justice. 
And that's how it works. The sword of the avenger, capital punishment. God established this. And so in every family unit in Israel, there was the Hadam Goel to follow through with this established practice. But God also established mercy. Verse one again. Joshua was spoken to the Lord, spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, designate the cities of refuge, the cities of asylum of which I spoke to you through Moses. So again, it's the third time. The manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation. So God is again looking at the heart, may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, according to Torah law, it's important to recognize that not only was the consequence of bloodshed human, that is if a human kills a human, then that human has to pay for it with their own blood, but the consequence of bloodshed was also environmental, which tells us not only how significant human life was to God, but how significant the promised land was to the Lord as well. Reading back in Numbers 35, verse 31, he says, moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. Sum it up, blood pollutes the land. Blood pollutes the land. Blood gets into the soil and it it makes the land defiled. So let's apply that one. According to FBI statistics in America 2020, and I'm I'm choosing 2020 for a reason here, during 2020, there were 21,570 murders in America. Guess which state was number one? Anyone have a guess on that one? I would have said Illinois because of Chicago. Immediately, nope, Texas. So you might wanna think twice if you're looking at moving there. Texas was number one in murders, 2,212 murders in the state of Texas, 2020. And Texas still leads the nation in number, total number of murders. New, New Hampshire and Vermont tied for the lowest. During 2020, each of those two states had 14 murders each. Now, as of 2021, I'll just throw this out. Hawaii only has six, so that's where I'm looking. As a nation, that amounts to 59 murders a day in 2020. 59 murders a day. You might say, well, that's just because of the lockdown. You know, we were a little sick of each other by then, and so we just started killing each other. No, no, 2021, 2021, the actual number went up. But sticking with 2020, again, a total of 21,570 murders in America, but we should rightfully include the 930,160 abortions that took place as well. And when you add abortion to murder, the number now grows in America 2020 to 2,608 murders a day. Blood pollutes the land. We have no idea what all this blood has done. 
And if you wonder, if you look at America today, as we have talked about, and it seems as if God is lifting his hand of blessing, there's your answer. Blood pollutes the land. I mean, how does God see the land of the free and the home of the brave when that much blood is being spilled? It amazes me, and I'm just gonna say it as it is, regardless of your political affiliations, that the Democrat Party has made abortion their key campaign issue for Tuesday. That's the one that they hold up. We're gonna run on this. This is a winning approach. Why do they think abortion rights, and that that phrase to me is a complete oxymoron, abortion rights. Why do they think abortion rights is a winning issue? You know why? Because 67% of Americans agree. I read that statistic and I thought, is that our church too? Do I have brothers and sisters in the Bridge Fellowship who would agree that there should be abortion rights and and we could go right down to what about rape and incest and that's always the first excuse that is tossed out there even though percentage-wise that's very, very slim. But I'll say this and some of you might get angry with me for it, but even in the case of rape and incest, a life is still lost. And I know I've talked about this before and I hope it's clear where I stand on, on life and, and the right to live and that life is given and is precious to the Lord and abortion is never okay before God. And if you wanna discuss that with me later, feel free. But I don't understand how so many Americans should think that it's an issue worth legalizing. If that's you, if you agree at some level that, well, certain abortions, you know, let me tell you one thing, if you're saying that, then you're caving in. But if you are one who thinks that, I beg you to biblically rethink the issue. Set aside culture and just ask, what is the Lord's perspective of life in any and every case, regardless of how it begins? What is the Lord's view of life? And what is the Lord's view of blood in the land? Because this generation doesn't think it's that big a deal. Is God's value of life still in play or not? Remember all the way back to Cain and Abel, how Cain struck his brother in the field and killed him? Do you remember what God said? Genesis chapter four, verse 10, he said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That should give us a fright. Is it possible then that blood still cries from the ground? that the blood of lost human life actually cries out to God for justice. By the way, that's what Abel's blood cried out for, justice. Talk about unfair. He did nothing to Cain. He just offered his best to God and Cain killed him for it. And Abel's blood cries justice. And the Hebrew pastor says in Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries justice. Jesus' blood cries both. Mercy and justice. I've always said before that Jesus' blood cries mercy. I have to add and justice because Jesus' blood shed on the cross also is the standard by which this world will be judged that he still cries for justice. And if you reject his mercy, if you will not receive his mercy, then what is left is the justice from which Jesus' blood or for which Jesus' blood cries out. 
Man, in the case of greatest historical irony, Pilate stands before the Jewish leaders and the, and the, the stirred up mob and he washes his hands before them and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See that to yourself, or see to that yourselves. See to his crucifixion yourselves. This is Matthew 27, 25. And it says, and all the people said, do you remember this? His blood shall be on us and on our children. Wow. That's the one line, by the way, that was deleted from Mel Gibson's The Passion because Jewish leaders were so upset by it. But it's exactly what was said. His blood is on us. And I think it's perfect. His blood is on me. For mercy's sake, his blood is on us who follow him. But his blood is also on this world for justice sake for all those who reject Jesus as Savior. My friends, the blood is still crying out from the ground. We do not have to guess God's righteous position when it comes to blood. Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens, that would be the tabernacle furniture, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it was necessary for these things that are copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is the blood of Jesus. So it is still blood for blood, blood sacrificed for blood spilled, that's the deal. And if you get that down, all of this falls into place, that that is absolutely fair, absolutely just, and absolutely merciful, blood for blood. And it's either going to be your blood for blood or it's going to be his blood for blood. You have that choice to make. And so Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.17, if you address the father as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. His blood for the cleansing of our bloodshed, the cleansing of our sin was established early on, but in the process of justice, Again, I say God also established mercy in these cities of refuge. You have the Hadam Goel, the blood avenger, who rightfully would exact that justice, but God said we've got to have a place that the non-premeditated, the unintentional manslayer can flee so that he can be treated fairly. All of these cities of justice clearly foreshadow or cities of refuge, clearly foreshadow our refuge in Jesus. This is marvelous to me because not only is Jesus the Hadam Goel, not only is he redeemer and he's groom and he's prosecutor of justice, but he is also our blood sacrifice for mercy. He's our refuge. So he's all of it encapsulated and as God established this perfect system for Israel to try to walk out, it's all a picture of his perfect son who embodies the whole thing. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Let me give you some quick points here. Uh, six quick picks, if you will, of, of what these cities of refuge mean as far as fulfillment in Jesus. Number one, 
Note this. Number one, the cities of refuge were accessible. Accessible. All of the cities of refuge, and if you look at them on your Bible maps and you can find them, they are established in places that are easy access for anywhere in the land. Wherever you are, the accident happens, you are within a short run to a city of refuge. Absolutely accessible to anyone. Deuteronomy 19.3 even goes so far as to say, you shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee there. And that's divided into three parts on the west side of the Jordan and divided into three on the east side. So wherever you are, there's an accessible city of refuge. Deuteronomy 19.3, God says to his people, and keep up the roads. Don't make it difficult to get there. Remove the rocks and the stones. Flatten, make, make the way to the refuge. And the best kept roads in Israel, it's said, were the roads that led to the cities of refuge wherever they may be. In addition, at every major crossroad in Israel, there were signs that would direct people to the cities of refuge. So again, wherever you are, if you're fleeing for your life and you're in the horror of what's just happened, that's an unintentional, non-premeditated act and you don't know what to do or where to turn, you start to run, you're gonna get one of those signs and you're gonna head to the closest city of refuge that you can find. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Romans 10 verse eight, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is accessible. Accessible to anyone and everyone. And all you have to do in a moment, in a heartbeat, is turn to him. Read the signs, man. They will lead you to Jesus. Secondly, the cities of refuge were available. Available. What was unique about these six cities is they actually had open gates. Now, most typical cities in Israel in the day had the gate as you went into the city, and at night the gates would be closed and locked, not the cities of refuge. There would be someone standing guard. The gates would be there in case of attack. They could be quickly closed, but the gates were kept open in the cities of refuge so that the cities were immediately available to anyone. Also, all six of these cities were up on a hill. Interesting, cities on a hill, keep that in mind, so that people could see them, get to them, access them, and enter them by availability. John six thirty seven. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. It's interesting that in these cities of refuge, even if someone was guilty of capital murder, they would flee to the city and they would be received by the city and they would stay in the city for judgment to be meted out, for there to be justice. And if it was found that this was a premeditated, hateful act of murder, then they would pay for it with their blood. The Hadam Goel would take and execute that person. But the gates were open, the cities were available, the cities were accessible. Number three, the cities of refuge were exceptional. Exceptional, that is, There was nowhere else that someone with blood on their hands could run to. Nowhere else you could go. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one exceptional way to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. You couldn't add your own city of refuge. You you couldn't say, well, I I thought this was a city of refuge. It's not. But I like this city. Well, that's not one of the six. 
Yeah, but, but what about over here? I'm sorry, but there are six cities of refuge and it's only those and those are the only places that you are safe. Six being the number of a man, which is always interesting to me that God established six for refuge. The cities of refuge, number four, this is interesting, were relational, relational. Jewish writings actually claim, and I can't prove this to you, but it's interesting to think, they claim that the mother of the high priest was the one tasked with providing clothing and food and care for the manslayer. So when the manslayer came into the city of refuge, they were received, there was immediate relationship established, even between the manslayer and the very family of the high priest himself which made capital punishment more judiciously carried out. You really had to have proof of intentional murder for capital justice, for uh, you know, the, the execution to actually take place. Number five, the cities of refuge were inhabitable. Inhabitable. Verse four of Joshua chapter 20 tells us he shall flee to one of the cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. They shall take him. The word there, take, is actually gather. They shall gather him into the city and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment. So there's a judgment that happens very quickly, the trial. And the trial, he has, pro- he has proven innocent, but he stays there. This becomes his home city in the case of unpremeditated accidental murder. He still has to stay there until the death of the high priest, which is amazing to me. The manslayer then shall return to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. The cities of refuge were inhabitable. That is, the city and its people became home to the manslayer. Think about the, the wisdom of that, that if you killed someone in another place and it was accidental, If you tried to live there for any amount of time, you still have the anger and the hurt and the upset of the family of the person that you killed. So even if you didn't mean it, that still is there in that place. God removes the person and puts them in a place where they are not known as a murderer. And they then have a home there and are taken in to that city and those people until the death of the high priest. Until the death. Amazing because it's the death of Jesus, the high priest of our confession that provides for our way home. We don't go home without the death of our high priest. But because Jesus died, Hebrews 3.1 tells us the high priest, again, of our confession, we now have a way home. And number six, number six, the cities of refuge were universal. Universal. As verse nine reads, if you skip down there, look at the first half. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Go back into history, into culture. Every ancient culture had laws and rules for its citizenry, right? But not for the foreigners, not for the foreigners. From Egypt to Babylon to Rome, rights of a citizen were only for the citizens of that society. There were no rights. There was no protection for a foreigner in a foreign land. 
In Israel, God changed all that. And Israel says, if a foreigner does this among you, they have the same rights. Now, we could argue that in American culture and American life because that's a big political, you know, hot button right there. But in Israel, God said, if you are a foreigner in the land, you are afforded the right of a city of refuge. You are afforded refuge. I love that because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Or as John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And if he stopped right there, we in the church among Christians could say, yeah, yeah, for our sins, nobody else's, but just ours. But John goes on to say, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. His blood is enough for everyone. Do we ever act as if or, or think that we're special? You know? Now, I did start out with the fact that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy people for God's own possession. So there is a specialness right there by God. But in and of ourselves, do we ever think we're some kind of special subset of humanity? That suddenly we're better than because we have been gifted with salvation. Suddenly we're better than because we're Christians. Here's the thing that we all know. Unintentionally or not, We all have blood on our hands. We all have blood on our hands. And the only way that you and I are saved is by the blood of Jesus, not because of some exceptionality upon ourselves. Let me read you something here. This is Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. I'll let you know when we studied through Hebrews a few years back now, I missed this completely. So I'm gonna tell it to you now. Hebrews chapter six, verse 16 says, men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath is given as confirmation to end every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed or guaranteed with an oath. So he not only gave the promise, but he gave an oath with it so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold or to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Did you hear that? We who have taken refuge. Here's the thing. The Greek word taken refuge, katafugantes. Katafugantes literally translates we who have fled for refuge. So the Hebrew pastor is drawing off of the three stories of the cities of refuge. He's drawing back to that and saying, that's us, that's us. You think you're off the hook. You think you're free of all this. No, you are the manslayer, brother. You are the manslayer, sister, who fled for refuge to the city of refuge, Jesus Christ. And we have fled to Jesus and we have taken hope in Jesus. Verse nine says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest, there it is, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the cities of refuge were all of these things. They were accessible, available, exceptional, relational. They were inhabitable and they were universal and all of this speaks of and points to Jesus and if that's not enough for you, go back to Joshua chapter 20, look at verse seven and listen to this. They set apart Kadesh 
in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan of the east of Jericho, they designated Betzer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramot in Galad from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. By the way, those of you who have traveled to Israel, the Golan Heights, that was Manasseh territory. And in the Golan was a city called Golan where it was one of the six cities of refuge. Check this out. This is amazing to me. On the west side, Kadesh means holy place. Also on the west side, Shechem means shoulder. Hebron means as we talked about recently, fellowship. So you have holy place, shoulder, fellowship. On the east side, you have Betzer, which means inaccessible stronghold. You have Ramat Begilad, which is the heights of the rock. And then you have Golan Babashan, which means altogether, they're captive, they're rejoicing. They're captive, they're rejoicing in the fertile plain. Now, we've done this before. Read it like a sentence. If we put all the names of the six cities of refuge together in the order that we're given those cities of refuge in Joshua chapter 20, here's the sentence I think you get pretty easily. Jesus left the holy place to shoulder our sin in fellowship with humankind, that he might take us up to the otherwise inaccessible stronghold in the heights of the rock, leading the captive, rejoicing into the fertile plain. I think that's just beautiful because these cities of refuge speak of Jesus, both implicitly and explicitly. We get a sense of our Redeemer. Ephesians chapter four, verse eight says, therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul says this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Explaining it as, except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself. He also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now stay with me. What does that mean? That's literal. That's literal. He died and descended into what the Bible calls the lower parts of the earth, but that is Greek euphemism for Hades. He descended into Hades In between death and resurrection, he descended and he led captive a host of captives. Those who died in faith, in paradise Hades, waiting for the day of their redemption, Jesus set them free and he led the captives in their rejoicing to that otherwise inaccessible stronghold. It also applies to you and to me in that we were yet captive and yet we will ascend. We will ascend Ever since the death of Jesus, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. How much do you think about death? Doesn't make you more deep if you think about it more than other people. I'm just asking. How much do you think about death? You know, as you age in this life and certain physical infirmities start to hit, and they will, and they do, everyone You do have those thoughts. Is this what's going to take me out? (laughs) Is this my ticket out? And, And these thoughts enter our minds. I love how Paul says, we are of good courage. You see, the follower of Jesus above all people can even consider their own death with courage, 
with hope and even with rejoicing because we prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Because guess what? Absent from the body means no more physical infirmity of any kind ever again. My body glorified, my home with Jesus, and I'm good to go. And that's good courage. But we need a refuge. You have to have a refuge to get there, and Jesus is our refuge. We all were once a host of captives, captive to our sin, captive to death. We were all manslayers in need of salvation from the blood that is on our hands. And I know what someone here must be thinking. Well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't spilled blood. Are you so sure? Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and everyone who commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, and by the way, he's not replacing, but he's, he's emphasizing this very law. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow, as a young believer, hearing that, I remember wondering, okay, so if I say, you fool, that's a guaranteed ticket to hell. Is that the same thing as saying, dork? You know, can I get away with that one? How about you moron or dweeb? I mean, I had a whole list of, can I go there? As long as I don't say, you fool. Here's what Jesus just did in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't replace the law, you shall not commit murder. He placed the law into the heart. And he said, that's the issue. It's not the words you speak. It's not even the action of your hands. All of these things, they, they come from the heart. These are a heart issue. It's not the words I use. It's the heart with which I use them. And we have all known exasperation with other people. We have all known frustration. We have all heated up at some point in our lives in anger. And maybe we didn't even verbally say, you fool, but we sure looked at them as if they were. Because that was the intent of the heart. And there is such a profound connection between anger and murder. My friends, we need a refuge. We, every one of us, need a refuge. We have all heated up to anger, boiling over to sin, whether it's sin unseen by others, sin that is in the heart, a darkness that overtakes us or overcomes us. And we all know, and we all later feel for what we felt And no, that wasn't a right attitude. And no, even in many cases, those weren't right words. And we know we spoke them to hurt somebody. We know we were killing with our words. And it came from a heart that had murderous intent. I would never murder anybody. Maybe not. But that doesn't change the reality of the darkness of the heart. We need a refuge. We need one to whom we can run. Bible has a lot to say about anger. I actually had to pull some stuff out because we would have been here too long. But there were several verses. Go through Proverbs and just look up every verse in Proverbs about anger and you will find it stirring. Here's two of them. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. 
Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. And I have seen that and I have been that. But the slow to anger calms a dispute. It's really hard to argue with someone when they won't argue back. You know, right, sons? I mean, it takes two to tango, as we've talked about. You gotta argue together. If one's saying stuff and the other one's just not responding, there's nothing there to go forward with. Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. And that is the biggest challenge I think humanity faces. Be angry, yet do not sin. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Do not give the devil an opportunity. See, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? So all he's looking for is an opportunity to bring theft or death or destruction, be it to a life or a relationship. That's what he's about from the womb to the tomb. If there is death in any direction, he's all in. It's what he is working for. Anger is the devil's playground. By the way, it's interesting when Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin, from Ephesians chapter four, he's quoting Psalm chapter four, verse four, where David said, tremble and do not sin. But the word tremble is literally raging agitation. (laughs) Rage with agitation and do not sin. The psalm goes on, Psalm 4, verse 4, to tell you how. He says, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And then that verse ends with, Selah. (laughs) Pause. You're angry? Meditate on your bed and be still. And be still. Because sometimes anger is right. There is a righteous anger as much as there is an unrighteous, murderous anger. Righteous anger is always managed, always controlled by the Holy Spirit, by the person who feels, and and we've all felt this too, that righteous indignation welling up inside us. Pause for a moment, be sure that, that it is truly righteous, like Jesus did when he showed up at the temple and we're told in Mark chapter 11, and it's, it's fascinating and important to note, when Jesus was turning over temples and making a whip of cords and driving out the animals and the money changers, it almost seems like Jesus is just off the rails. Jesus is out of control. But Mark 11 tells us, no, in fact, Jesus went into the temple, saw everything that was going on, and did not fly off the handle, but went and spent the night. And then the next morning came back and cleared the temple. Why? He was still on his bed. He meditated on his bed, was still before the Lord, and came back with true righteous indignation. James 1 verse 19 says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. (laughs) Well, then how can anyone? We need a refuge. We need a refuge. God is our refuge, Psalm 46, verse one, and our strength, a very present help in trouble. You run to the Father immediately because anger is an issue of the heart, which is why the refuge system of justice and mercy took into mind premeditation. It was looking at the heart. We need to pause in the justice system and say, look at the heart, What was the person's intent? Did they mean for this to happen? If they didn't, they have a home in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And then they have their home, which they can return to. So life is still 
precious, but there is a forgiveness there. God sees not as man sees for Samuel 16, 17, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, which is why, again, I say Jesus alone is refuge, he's redeemer, and he's blood avenger. That he is all three. He alone offers us redemption. And at the same time, it is Jesus who will exact wrath on a sin-soaked, blood-stained world. Which would you have him be? Would you have him be your redeemer? The kinsman redeemer of the Goel. Or would you have him be the Hadam Goel, the blood avenger? That is up to you. Now listen. There's something else here historically ironic yet divinely redemptive about these cities of refuge. As they're described throughout Joshua 20, these are priestly cities. So don't miss this. I started out by saying 12 of the tribes had their inheritance and by chapter 19's end, they did, except for Levi. Chapter 20 begins Levi's inheritance. The cities of refuge are priestly cities. The first six mentioned of the 48, and you'll see in chapter 21 going forward, 48 cities are gonna be listed for Levi, and among them are the six cities of refuge. You see Hebron in verse 13 of chapter 21, Shechem in verse 21, Golan in verse 27, Kadesh in verse 32, Betzer in verse 36, and finally Ramat Gilad in verse 38. These are priestly cities. That is so important to note, and it is so ironic that the cities of refuge given to Levi, come from a heritage of Levi who was a man seething with anger. That Levi himself is the very example of what not to be. Levi and his brother Shimon, angry about the rape of their sister, go into the city of Shechem and slaughter every one of the men. And I've mentioned that story to you recently. That's Genesis 35. Genesis 49 verse Five. Remember, remember old Jacob said, Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger, they slew men. And in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed, Jacob says. Israel says, cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob. And I will scatter them in Israel. And that is so amazing because remember, Shimon gets dispersed into the very midst of the tribe of Judah and become consumed throughout all of Israel. And Levi is dispersed throughout Israel as well in 48 priestly cities. It continues to be ironic though because not only does their forefather Levi have blood on his hands, but the Levites have blood on their hands. Remember what happened at Mount Sinai that Levi bore the sword against 3,000 of their brothers and sisters in Israel, of their Hebrew brothers at Mount Sinai. 3,000 fell by the swords of the sons of Levi. Yeah, what about that? (laughs) So they get to be priests because they killed? Remember that that was divine execution that was called for by the Lord and everybody had opportunity to stand on the side of the Lord or to stand on the side of the golden calf and 3,000 stuck with the calf and 3,000 died that day. 
That's the difference, by the way, between unrighteous anger and righteous anger. The unrighteous anger we see in the forefather of Levi killing the men of Shechem. Righteous anger was the sons of Levi now under the direction of the Lord killing the 3,000 at Mount Sinai. Praise God, 3,000 were saved in Acts chapter two. It's an interesting contrast and a study for another time. But some could still say to the tribe of Levi, to the priestly tribe that gets to be in the presence of the Lord and they get their 48 priestly cities and they get the cities of refuge, some might say, hey, Levi, we know what you've done. Come on, priestly tribe. You're the ones with blood on your hands, the blood of your own brothers. And it's true. Which is why at the very beginning I said, if God is solely just, we are in trouble. But if God is both perfect justice and perfect mercy, then Levi can become priestly. The ones with blood on their hands become a priestly tribe. And note what happens to Levi. Blood will be their daily work. The rest of their lives at the altar, blood, a continual reminder of blood that is shed and blood must be shed for blood that is spilled. And Levi would be the one shedding the blood at the altar. And along with that, they get the presence of the Lord. Again, back in Matthew 20. Uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 23, Jesus said, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. We're a priestly tribe. We are a a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you know how do you, you proclaim those excellencies, royal priesthood? For whom Levi is a picture now for us and these cities of refuge, we, like Levi, are called to proclaim the blood work of the altar. That's our mission in life, to live to and for the one whose pure and spotless blood really works. We are like the priestly tribe. So not only do we need a refuge, but last thing to note here, we are to be a refuge. We are cities of refuge in a bloodthirsty world. We are, as a church fellowship, a city of refuge on Whidbey Island and for Fidalgo Island, for anyone who would run to the Lord. We're a city of refuge. We're among the cities of refuge, the churches of God that are the church of God in this world. Victorious, we are priestly, Christian cities of refuge like Levi, both forgiven and forgiving. And this is so immediately practical to every single one of us that we are to be people of forgiveness and reconciliation, of reception, the people of Jesus. Like all of those six uh, characteristics of the cities of refuge, look back in your notes, that's us. That's what we're supposed to be, as Jesus himself is. Because Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, 
reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Same thing. So we can sit here all day long and talk about Jesus, what what Jesus did, but we do not believe it until we start to do what Jesus did, until we ourselves become cities of refuge. And it starts right here. It starts in your heart. It starts in your family. Are you a refuge in your family? Or are you a stronghold against all that's going on? Are you a refuge among your friends? Or are you one who puts off all those who don't think like you think? Am I a city of refuge right here and right now in this very fellowship? Paul said in Ephesians 4.23, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So I'll tell you this, until you've gone to the same lengths of Jesus, you're not done forgiving anybody in your world. Cities of refuge. If you are fleeing a life of sin this morning, flee to Jesus. If you have been welcomed in to his refuge, if you've been taken in, then you are to be a refuge in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I love the application of your word because that is what calls me to change. That's what calls me to a different mindset and a different behavior. So as we look at the interpretation of your word and we see these cities of refuge and we see, Father, your grace and your mercy offered to people fleeing from bloodshed, we recognize that we ourselves, we flee from the bloodshed of our own anger, our own sin, our own messiness and bloody hearts. We flee to you, Lord Jesus, for refuge. But it doesn't end there. Lord Jesus, we all come before you and we ask you, Help us, Lord, to be exactly that. Cities of refuge in this world. This church, a city of refuge for people in this world. And I pray it will begin one by one with each of us. Lord, if there's any one of my brothers or sisters who has a real struggle with anger, then I pray for stillness and meditation on their beds before you. I pray that you will teach how to ameliorate that anger and replace it then with grace and mercy and wisdom and yes, Lord, truth. I pray this morning, Father, if there's anyone who needs the refuge of Jesus, that they will simply come to you and receive you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.